played the board game Life? Are you familiar with its history? It's quite interesting, really. Did you know that in 1798, this board game made its way to the United States and it was called the New Game of Human Life? In the game, it was made up of moves based on virtues and vices, and the virtues would speed you through the game while the vices would slow you down. Uh, this was a game where parents were encouraged to play with their children as they would learn morality. The makers of the game described its purpose when they said, and I quote, Life is a voyage that begins at birth and ends at death. God is at the helm, and your reward lies beyond the grave. A man named Milton Bradley took up the legacy of that game in 1860, and he created a board game called The Checkered Game of Life. The good path included things like honesty and bravery. The slower path included things like uh, uh, idleness and disgrace. Industry and perseverance sped players through the game to win wealth and success. Bradley described this game as a highly moral game that encourages children to lead exemplary lives and entertains both old and young with the spirit of friendly competition. Evidently, he didn't play too many games at my house. Anyhow, 100 years later in 1960, the Milton Bradley Company released an anniversary game called simply the game of life. That game went on to sell 35 million copies. This game though, it was revised to have the players earning money and furniture and growing a family. Vices and virtues, well, they were non-existent. The winner of the game was simply the one who at the day of reckoning had the most money. And that's not all. The game was revised again in the 1990s as the million Milton Bradley company designers at that time tried to make the game less about money. This time, the family was even removed from the game in favor of players saving endangered species or solving pollution problems. Uh, they were the ones who were rewarded with cash prizes, which ultimately would create the winner. And then in 2011, the game was revised again. This time, players, they had the opportunity to do whatever they want and get rewarded for it. You could attend school, you could travel, you could start a family, you could do whatever you feel like. Values, well, they were up for grabs. You can get as many points donating a kidney as you could going scuba diving. Uh, there's no end or last square to the game. You stop anytime you want because there's this subtle hint here and that is we don't even want to mention death we don't want to mention the end of life the purpose of this game is and i quote do whatever it takes to retire in style at the end of the game what a change in perspective reflected even in the board games we play and and what's communicated through those a change that replaced virtue with value virtue which is objective a certain standard value which is subjective for any person playing well this morning we're going to finish paul's letter to titus uh in a, in a sense titus uh, uh paul is telling titus hey here's how you're going to build a healthy church you got to appoint good leaders and you need a family talk because everybody needs to know the part that they have to play and it's almost as if at the end here that Paul, he's just concluding that family talk and he's telling Titus, remind them of these things, remind them of these things. I want you to check it out. Let's go ahead and look at Paul's letter to Titus chapter three. It says this, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good 
to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Titius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And so as Paul begins chapter 3, he's telling Titus, Hey, Titus, remind the church family of these things. And it's in the present tense. So it's as if he's telling him, and keep reminding, and remind again, and remind again. Why? Because it's going to be so easy to forget. Why is it so easy to forget? Because he says, remind them of their response and their obedience to the civil authorities. See, if you were to travel back in time to the island of Crete, you'd discover a people who had earned an empire-wide reputation of being a dissatisfied, disgruntled people. They were always involved in plotting some sort of conflict, some type of rebellion. They hated Roman rule. Plutarch, a first century historian who lived at the same time as Titus, was at the same time Titus was serving on the island of Crete, he wrote about Crete and he said that Cretans were always on the verge of revolting against Rome. And you know what? The Jews would have been very happy to lend a hand to that revolt. And so Paul says, hey, the family of God is to be different. Sure, Roman rule was terrible. I mean, when you think about what was going on when Paul wrote this letter to, to Titus, I mean, the way that Romans ruled the society, it was terrible. It was depraved as ever. I mean, you go back, there was no sexual norms. Heterosexual, heterosexuality was considered prudish by society. The emperor was bisexual. Uh, pedophilia, adultery, idolatry, abortion, prostitution, drug addiction. They were not only empire-wide. I mean, these were all legal. They were absolutely acceptable. They were normal. And this was the century in which Jesus Christ would plant the living church. And that church would explode into existence. Why? Well, among other reasons, because Christians would live such radically different lives than anybody else. I mean, they had a reputation for respecting authority. Even when authority 
hated the very ground they walked upon. And so Paul, he's reminding Titus, hey, you tell them, respect the authority. He says, here's how you live Christianly on the island of Crete and everywhere else. You respect authority. And then he goes on and, and you, be, you, go, you be eager to go out of your way to serve your community leaders and to serve the people around you. You'd be ready to do good deeds. That means that our Christianity doesn't give us just this free pass from society where we get to check out or we get to just kind of hide away or anything like that. Again, this attitude is remarkably different from the status quo. That I'm going to engage the culture that doesn't want anything to do with me, but I'm still going to purposely put myself in it and allow them to say whatever they say because I'm eager to do good works. I'm eager to serve them. I'm eager to be hospitable and kind. So the Jewish community on the island of Crete, and in fact, throughout the whole Roman Empire, they actually urged you to withdraw from society, to form these little huddles that were self-sufficient, where nobody really came in and nobody really got out. And so with this mindset, you can imagine Jews were very reluctant to submit to the local laws and local authorities. They felt they were above it all. One author wrote that they treated people around them with thinly veiled disdain because they thought they were better than. And so rather than living amongst the people and demonstrating these godly attributes towards people and engaging one another with, uh, with good deeds... Well, they kept to themselves and they did nothing at all. They would not engage in society at large. As Christians, Paul's saying, hey, Titus, you've got to remind the church family that we're called to be good citizens, that we engage and that, that we treat people well. And then he goes on, he defines what that looks like. And he says, don't slander anyone. He says, hey, Titus, remind them and remind them again and keep reminding them that true Christianity, it doesn't run like other people through the mud. Take words out of your vocabulary like dumb, stupid, and jerk, and fool. You're never going to impress anyone with your Christianity with language like that. I mean, when you yell at another driver on the road or, or you talk bad about a professor or a boss or somebody, a colleague, a neighbor, it doesn't go anywhere. And so it's also important to just remember what all Paul has been through as he's writing this letter. Uh, I mean, Roman governors, through pride and incompetence, they'd kept Paul in prison for years. Roman authorities had illegally bound him. They'd beaten him with rods. They delayed his hearings multiple times. And when the charges were presented, they left him in house arrest for several more years. I mean, if anybody had a good reason to write a letter, it was Paul. But that letter wouldn't be written to Titus. No, it'd be written to Rome and saying how, he, how poorly he's been treated, how mistreated he's been. He could have demanded better treatment from Rome. He was a Roman citizen after all. But yet in his jailed cell that was called the rat's nest, he writes and he says, be peaceable, be considerate, be gentle towards everyone. I mean, this is a radical shift. No one, no one would think this way unless the Holy Spirit is moving upon you and Jesus is redefining how you ought to think and ought to live. See, as Christians, we ought to promote godliness in society. And we do that by actively being involved. We don't just take a back seat and hide out. No, we get involved. And so that's why we talk so much here at Central about sharing Jesus and impacting people wherever it is that we live, work, study, and play. Because we're involved people. We want to get to know people and build relationships with people. We want to promote godliness in society. And that's what Paul's talking about here, promoting godliness in society. Now, what Paul does next is interesting. 
He not only reminds them, hey, here's, here's what all you should be doing. You should be promoting godliness in society. But then he reminds them what they used to be doing. Why? Because the believer, and you're hearing this letter, you can just imagine you're hearing this. You're thinking, why in the world would I ever treat Roman rulers this way? Why in the world would I go out and be so kind, peaceable, and considerate to these people in society who are, who are such sinful, nasty, dirty kind of people? I mean, these Cretans, why, why would I treat them with kindness and love and courtesy and humility and deference? And Paul, he anticipates that type of response. And so he effectively says, hey, you know what? You act like that towards them. Because of what you used to be like, that's verse 3, when God in his kindness interrupted your life by means of salvation, that's verses 4 through 7. So this is what he's getting at. Hey, you do this because this is exactly who you used to be when God demonstrated his love towards you even when you were acting that way. So as a way to uh, explain the gospel by the way you live, this is why you do this. So... He's telling him in verse 3, hey, you know, you remember the, the hole that you, that you were living in. You remember the pit that you were dug from. You remember the slime in which you swam in. You remember the capabilities of your fallen nature that at one time just drug you through the mud and how you loved every single minute of it. And because of that, you promote godliness by being actively engaged with and extended godliness to ungodly people. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. Don't you see? This is simply being conformed to the image of Christ. We're, we're, we're being made like him. And do you hear how Paul spoke of our salvation? I just want to recap. This is the great salvation that we've been given. Paul, he says that, hey, he, he took our vileness and he gave us virtue. He took our perversion and he gave us his purity. He took our record of sin and he gave us his record of sinlessness. We've been ambushed by the grace of God in every area of our life with this remarkable redeemer who provides a radical redemption so that we are undergoing this revitalizing reconstruction and we look forward to a righteous reward. Paul spells all that out in just this long extended sentence. And since we have been saved in such a fashion, we are to, Paul says, be devoted to good deeds. We don't do good deeds to go to heaven. We don't do good deeds simply because they're good. We do good deeds because we were created to do good deeds. I mean, in order to live life to its fullest, we do good deeds. Why? Because this is what we were made to do. And whenever you don't do what you're made to do, there's always disruption in life. There's always ache and hurt and pain in life. But when you live life how you've been made to live it, well, that's the best life possible. And so this is the advertising campaign of Christianity. I mean, this is why God kind of wired us this way, because it's an undeniable demonstration of a changed life. It's why Paul, in this letter, he just says time and time and time again, you live out your faith in front of others through good deeds. John Calvin, the uh, old reformer, he put it another way. He said that we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. 
in Titus, as Paul writing, you might want to circle these verses when he talks about good deeds. In, t- in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, be an example of good deeds. In 2.14, be zealous for good deeds. In 3.1, be ready for every good deed. In 3.8, be careful to engage in good deeds. In 3.14, learn to engage in good deeds and to meet pressing needs. I mean, he goes on and on and on and repeats himself numerous times. We are to be people who do good deeds. We're to be careful and intentional in doing good deeds. There's thought behind it. It implies this, this creativity and, and a thorough investigation and in how I'm going to do good deeds and, and what form and what nature those good deeds are going to take. And this verb is in the present tense. So Paul isn't saying, hey, you know, you do one good deed and well, that's good. No, but this is a way of life. This is your mindset. This is how we live. Sometimes when we see the world, we'll say, wow, I mean, look at that Christian. They're remarkable. I mean, everything they do and how kind they are to everyone, all the good deeds that they do, that is remarkable Christianity. And Paul is saying, no, this is normal Christianity. This is what normal Christianity looks like, that you're a blessing to others. And then by being this blessing to others, there's like these concentric circles outward that begin to spread. It's like a rock that's thrown into a calm pond. And then you just see the ripples moving outward. Paul tells us that our engagement in the work of good deeds as we're eager to do them will be profitable to mankind in general. The the profitability is not just for like the religious people or, hey, you know, my pastor's going to feel good. It's going to help serve the church. It's not simply for the church, not not simply for for the family of God. It's not simply for people we know. It's not simply for people who are, who are surrounded by us. No, he says that our good deeds help people, and that is people in general, mankind. So we do good deeds to benefit others, all kinds of others. We do good deeds to benefit others. And how did this work in Paul's day? I want to give you a couple examples. During the days of Paul, infanticide was an epidemic. Uh, children would often be, who were, who were unwanted, they would just left and they'd be exposed to die. Baby girls were especially at risk of this. However, Christians began providing care for these abandoned children. One second century Christian, he was uh, martyred by the Romans for supporting and protecting a number of deformed and crippled children. Uh, He saved them from death. And this was such an affront to Roman culture. It, It so violated their cultural norms. And of course, at the same time, it brought guilt down upon their heads. So they put him to death so they didn't have to see it anymore. They didn't have to be confronted with it anymore. Seneca, a, a leading Roman philosopher, communicated that the majority opinion uh, of society, when he wrote these tragic words, he said, we drown children who at birth are weakly and abnormal. You know, we've once again arrived at a time in our culture where with our medical sophistication and prenatal science, that some people say, hey, this is what you do. You just end the life. Uh, And so they take the same ethical position as these people took on the island of Crete. A couple today who's found to carry a child with some kind of defect is encouraged to terminate the pregnancy. And this is the majority of opinion. However, as Christians, we think differently. Christianity, it comes along and it tells us that all life is viewed as precious by God. No matter how difficult, no matter how disabled, that all life is precious. Dionysus, a church leader in the third century, 
He wrote about a, a plague that had swept through Alexandria in 250 AD. He said, the citizens, he wrote, thrust aside anyone who began to be sick. And they kept aloof from their dearest friends. And they cast sufferers out uh, upon the public roads, half dead, and then left them unburied, treating them with contempt when they died. You know, are we going to risk our lives for this? I mean, you know, we want to avoid this. And having just come through a pandemic, I mean, you maybe can understand this thinking a little bit. But how different was that thinking compared to the Christian thinking during the third century? Dionysus also wrote this. He said, Christians did not spare themselves, but they kept gathering with each other, that they visited the sick without thought of their own peril, that they treated them for healing, that they, they, they kept drawing upon themselves their neighbor's diseases, and they willingly were taking over their own persons the suffering of those around them. See, the Christian just thanks differently and therefore we live differently and you know what happened with christianity during that time it exploded throughout the roman world because the thinking was so different the value of life was so different the way life was lived was so different that if you're going to think like this and if you're going to live like this it's attractive to people and Paul, he then says, well, if you really are going to think like this, if you really are going to live this attractive gospel centric life, well, you've got to be free from distractions. And so that's the next point here that he says there's four foolish distractions that you have to avoid. And the first are foolish controversies. The word for controversies here refers to searching or investigating things that have no basis. They have no substantive meaning. They're merely these speculations that occupy the mind, that take up a lot of time, but you really have no ability to resolve them. You just kind of think about them. Um, they seem fascinating, but they're really just a fascinating waste of time. And he says, hey, you don't have anything to do with that. And next thing, he says, genealogies. This would have been especially important to the Jewish audience. The Jewish people, they meticulously investigated and documented their, their family lines. They, they loved like mapping out their family tree because their inheritances and uh, the holding of land would be determined by this. And genealogies also determined status in that culture. Ancestral dominance would lead to positions of authority and Paul recognized the danger that this would be to the church. I mean, can you imagine with these Gentiles coming in and now these Jews and they're saying, hey, if you knew our forefathers, you know, we're related to these apostles. We're related to these prophets. Our lines go back to King David and all that. And so we're better than, and he knew the dangers of all that. See, the only genealogy, Paul makes this case, the only genealogy that matters is are you related to Jesus Christ by faith. If you are part of that genealogy by faith, then you have become a child of God, John 1.12. Then you've been born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, John 1.13. See, that's the only family tree that really matters. So Paul effectively says, start living in light of that family tree. Don't concern yourselves with all these other genealogies. And then he goes on to here. Third, we avoid the distraction of arguments. In that word, it stands as a 
categorical term, really, for slandering, quarreling, arguing, anything of the sort. And you get the idea that Paul is not warning the churches of what not to do. The implication here is, no, the churches are already involved in this a little bit. And so you need to step up and you need to make sure that, that, that they rid themselves of all this. Um, we learned in an earlier text, Paul revealed that we have been ambushed by grace and we've been ambushed by the kindness of God. And sometimes what do we learn from that example? Well, we learn the part about the ambushing each other, but we don't catch quickly, as quickly, that it's an ambush of grace. We just attack, we argue, we debate. And Paul says, no, you can't have that. And the last thing, disputes about the law. He's not talking about politics here. He's not really talking about legal law so much. This is referring to the law of Moses. Why? Because scripture should be used to unite us as Christians. And throughout the history of the church, you must stand together, unite together, strive together for the gospel, for the unity found in the word of God. Now, it is true that sometimes there are debates about the word. Paul himself, he had to stand up oftentimes to the Judaizers who were trying to twist scriptures and convince the Gentiles that if they really wanted to be Christians, well, they had to act Jewish. But the Bible should not be used primarily as a topic of debate. And, and Paul's making this clear. It, it, this, the scripture is not for you just to debate all your fun little speculations or whatever. But, is, but the purpose of scripture is to equip us for good deeds. This is just what Paul's been talking about all the time. And if you miss that equipping, that equipping which we've been saved for, which the word of God does in our lives, and if we turn it into something else, well, then we are misusing the scriptures. And so Paul says, hey, you got to avoid yourself of these four distractions. And then he goes on, he says, and if there is a divisive person among you, you warn them once, you warn them twice, and then you're done with them. You got to remove them from your midst. You, you can't have that person around. And Paul, in numerous letters that he writes, he will talk and he will tell churches, hey, you got to get this person out. You got to be done with this divisive person. You got to be done with that divisive person. Why? Because it will break down the health of the church. It's not that you don't forgive, but just because I forgive doesn't mean that right relationship is restored. You know, Jesus, he forgave from the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They do not understand what they're doing. But it doesn't mean that right relationship was restored with all these people. And so this is the same idea here. Yes, you forgive. But that forgiveness does not mean that the relationship is right. And if there's someone divisive in the church who's, who's consumed with all of these distractions, well, then you got to be done with that person. you got to get them out for the sake of the health of the church and for the testimony of the gospel. See, this is so critical that we avoid distractions. We avoid distractions. Paul, he's going to conclude his letter with just this uh, farewell uh, segment there at the end. And he's talking and he's saying goodbye to all these people. And even in that, he's encouraging them and do good works. Look, look out for these people. See, everything that he's wrote about now even gets played out in application at the very end of his letter. And the question for us is, does it get played out in our lives? Are, are we these kind of people? Is this what we focus on? And remember, right at the beginning of this chapter, Paul's telling Titus, you got to remind them of this. And you got to keep reminding them of this. And you remind them again and you remind them again. See, we have to con continually remind ourselves of this. That we are people who are focused on good 
deeds because we are created for good deeds. And it is our good deeds that is a great example and testimony of the gospel of our God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you first demonstrated goodness to us. You demonstrated your love to us, God, while we were your enemies, while we were sinners. And God, because of that and because of what we've done and the things we've been involved in, God, because of the gospel, so now we live lives focused on the good, eager to do the good that we can for the benefit of others. God, help us not to be involved in these silly distractions that are just time wasters and things that can cause divisions and tear down the health of the church. But God, help us to focus on the things you've called us to focus on, namely the good deeds that we were created to do. We recognize we do need your help for that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.